You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have Dr. Jeffrey A. Morgan. He's a cardiac surgeon, does bypass surgery, mitral and aortic valve surgery, uh, insertion of heart pumps called LVADs and heart transplants. He's also the chief uh, medical officer for BioLife 4D. So, uh, Dr. Morgan, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you very much for having me today. Yeah. So, uh, in addition to the surgeon, uh, what what are you working on as uh, the chief medical officer at BioLife? Well, we're working on something that's very, very exciting uh, at BioLife 4D. Uh, we are developing a bio-artificial heart, and uh, this is uh, uh, going to address the significant need for organs today in patients with advanced heart failure. What I mean by that is there are thousands of patients who need heart transplantations, but we cannot meet that need with the organs that are currently available. There just simply aren't enough donors uh, to be able to accommodate all the patients with advanced heart failure who need heart transplantation. At BioLife 4D, we are working on developing a artificial bio heart which is basically a heart that's made from human cells, uh, from a patient's cells. Um, this patient also themselves or from a donor? Uh, from a patient themselves. And um, okay. what, it, uh, what it also, the other major advantage in addition to availability of the organ is also the lack of rejection because of the cells because the cells are made from the patient himself or herself, uh, the body will not reject the heart, which is unlike today when you receive a donor heart, it comes from another individual, unfortunately, an individual who has been pronounced brain dead, who has graciously agreed to donate their organs. Um, but uh, unfortunately, one of the major problems with Heart transplantation today is rejection, and uh, these pa- 
patients basically need to be on chronic lifelong anti-rejection medications uh, in order to minimize the rejection. You never fully get rid of the rejection, but you minimize it. And the problem is that by suppressing the immune system, you make the patient much more susceptible to infection. So in many ways, transplantation today is really trading one disease for another. And what I mean by that is you give the patient a new heart, but you open them up to a lifelong risk of infection and rejection. And, you know, because we don't have any other therapy today, it's obviously the gold standard today. But at BioLife 4D, we're working on developing a different solution to this problem that will not be associated with rejection and also will not be associated with the high incidence of infection because these patients will not need to take immunosuppression. So what kind of cells are you culturing? Are you doing induced pluripotent stem cells from you know, bone marrow or blood? Or uh, Well, right now we're looking at different uh, different types of cells. We have we have a few different models that we're looking at. Um, we have made a lot of progress. We recently were able to create a mini heart, which was a huge, huge milestone and happened earlier than we thought it would happen when we initially formulated the company. Um, so uh, development of a bio heart has been a major, major milestone. Um, and actually it can not only be used as a model for a future heart, but it actually has a lot of benefits in and of itself in terms of testing drugs and looking at cardiac toxicity in a uh, small model rather than needing to do that through animal models, which is more expensive and has a lot of ethical and animal-related issues. Yeah, they call them organoids, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, you know, by, by creating this mini heart, different drug companies will be able to uh, test their drug and look for cardiac toxicity without going through the usual mechanism of uh, giving the drug to animals, surviving the animal, looking at um, toxicity, uh, sacrificing the animal, looking at their organs, um, looking at their heart. So it's a major breakthrough and uh, uh, something we're very, very excited about. I've talked to some organ owner chip people, and one company they linked, uh, I believe it was the liver and kidney modules, and they saw some effects that they did not see just by one alone. Is there any uh, science out there to link organoid systems, link heart and lungs, et cetera, or heart and uh, you know liver to see uh, what behaviors you might observe? You know, we haven't had, that's a great idea, um, fascinating idea, and, 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 you know, it might actually happen in the future. We, we haven't had any direct discussions um, along those lines yet, probably only because, you know, it's been so recent. It, it, it happened fairly recently that we actually were successful in developing this BioHeart, but, um, but that's a great idea, and, you know, certainly something that um, I think, you know, we may see in the future. Yeah, the reason I ask, and I don't know the specifics, I'd have to dig, but um, there was a drug that they said, uh, you know, was toxic to the kidney, and they tried a different formulation of it, and it um, it wasn't toxic to the kidney when it was the kidney alone, but when they hooked up liver and kidney, they saw the liver process the drug 
and made a metabolite that was then toxic to the kidney. Uh, so it showed them a mechanism that they missed. So that's why maybe if, again, I haven't heard of anyone connecting organoids, but if it's possible, it might be interesting to look at that. It might show you, you know, I don't know, better ways to, uh, to get the heart going. That's a, that's a phenomenal, phenomenal idea. Um, I can't say that we've had discussions around that subject. Um, so th- thank you for that idea that, that uh, you know, well, certainly well. something that I'll take back to our team and discuss with them. Um, it certainly makes sense, uh, you know, perhaps to not look at something in isolation in terms of its cardiac toxicity, but to look at it in association with other organs. So, uh, you know, I think I think in general, the future of testing drugs may move in this direction because it's currently so expensive, right? Hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars to test drugs um, and, and all the animal testing and clinical trials. This might be a uh, not a be all end all, but this might be a precursor. It might be one of the preliminary steps that can replace a lot of the current preliminary steps that are right now much more expensive. Have you identified if there's a, a microbiome associated with the heart or with any other organ for that matter, but specifically the heart? Has that been looked for? I don't know. Um, when you say microbiome, what? Tell me, just be a little more specific. Well, you know, we have a gut microbiome, and I know in the lungs, yeah. too, there are also bacteria that are resident there. I wonder if um, in internal organs like the heart, liver, et cetera, if they have microbes associated with them. I don't know if anyone's ever looked, but I wonder if that happens, and if so, would it modulate the function of the organ? And maybe that's being ignored if no one's even looked for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good point. You know, generally, we, you know, we think of the heart as, being sterile, you know, not having any bacteria um, associated with it, uh, you know, and when there is bacteria, it can, of course, cause myocarditis or it can cause endocarditis or other infections, you know, of the heart. But, um, but that's an interesting, uh, interesting, uh, uh, you know, process that you describe and, and, you know, something I'll look into a little bit more. Yeah, well, as you said, if, if certain bacteria are known to inflame the heart and cause it problems, and they got yeah. there somehow, maybe that means that uh, there are natural bacteria that hang out around it. I don't know. I know it's way out there, but just wanted to point yeah. it out maybe as a as a thought process. Yeah, no, it's an you know it's a really interesting uh, phenomenon. I you know I I need to look into that. So many things we don't know. Oh, I know. So, so the um, the heart organoids you make, where where do the constituent cells come from? Like, where are they cultured from? Um, so we're lo- we have different models that we're looking at now. Um, there are bone marrow cells that we're looking at. Um, there are uh, other progenitor cells that we're looking at as well. Um, it, you know, we haven't settled in completely on the model yet. Well, is there a preferred, um, I mean, have you tried to make heart organoids from different constituent cells? And, you know, is it harder to differentiate them if they're from bone marrow versus some other kind of cell? You know, what if you take the myocardial cells themselves and, you know, put them back to their pluripotent state and then use them to make the heart? I mean, are you noticing any differences depending on the constituency of what you're starting with? Yeah, I can't say that we have enough information yet. Um, to really answer that yet, you know, in terms of the different locations and the actual process, uh, we're still, we're still in the relatively early stage, but, you know, that type of question, you know, probably I have to really consult more with my, uh, 
with the scientific, with the chief scientific officer of the company to really delve deeply into, you know, the type of cells and what the different models are right now. Well, with the, so the organoid itself, like how many different functions of the heart are you trying to model? Are you trying to do all of them or just one? And how many different? Well, we're cell trying types to model. To make it effective. Yeah, yeah. So we're, you know, we're we're modeling, um, we're modeling uh, the entire heart. So our goal is to create. Uh, all the structures of the heart, um, the different chambers of the heart, four chambers, right atrium, right ventricle, left atrium, left ventricle, the four valves of the heart, tricuspid and mitral valve, aortic and pulmonic valve, the arteries, the main arteries, coronary arteries that run on the heart, the veins as well, and the coronary sinus, the aorta. So um, there are multiple, multiple different cell types that we are uh, dealing with, and it's a complex structure um, to recreate the heart and not just to recreate it, but to recreate it in such a way that can handle the blood pressure. It can beat in a coordinated fashion, just like we have with the native heart right now. In the current organoids that are being created, um, what functions are you, I know you're trying to do all of them, but are you having to do a subset in order to make it work? Yeah. Yeah. That is our goal is to, is to make it work, is to create a heart that simulates the uh, human heart as it is right now, heart that's able to beat, sustain the blood pressure, um, receive blood on the right side, pump it to the lungs, have it come back and have the blood go out to the organs on, from the left side. And it's a, uh, it's a complex process. This mini heart is definitely a major uh, step in the right direction. So when, when someone has heart failure, does that mean the whole heart tends to fail, or is it more like the left ventricle? You know, if maybe you might not have to make a whole new heart. What if you can make part of a heart that just addresses like the most common issue that people have in heart failure? Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, usually it's the left side of the heart that fails, although sometimes both sides of the heart fail. Uh, we have devices now that we put into patients who need just the left-sided device called an LVAD, left ventricular assist device. Um, those devices work well for patients who have left-sided heart failure. Uh, the problem, though, is even those patients, uh, most of them have some degree of right-sided heart failure, and they still have quite a bit of symptoms after the LVAD due to right heart failure. They can also have arrhythmias. They can have valvular problems, leaky valves that cause issues and problems. So even though their heart failure is primarily left-sided, they still have um, significant clinical uh, consequences or sequelae from the right side and from the valve. Um, and, uh, okay. So the know, thought so, is so, uh, it, it's better to just try to do the whole heart replacement instead of, you know, making it into a... a I guess sort of organic cyborg and, you know, just adding on parts of it. I just figured that might be easier. What if you're able to only make an LVAD, but a biologically based one? You know, I know it wouldn't solve everything, but maybe that's an easier task than an entire heart because it's so complicated. Yeah, it's a, it's a super interesting question. Uh, I mean, wow, this conversation has been very enlightening. It's been amazing for me. Um, I have to have to thank okay. you. You really... Uh, you've really planted some interesting ideas in my mind. Um, thank you. Oh, good. Um, that's, uh, that's quite an interesting question, you know, whether you can create a bio heart just for the left side 
and do an operation where you somehow resect the left atrium and left ventricle and implant a new bio heart, just left atrium, left ventricle. Very, very interesting. Um, again, well, what that's if you not don't resect? That, what if you don't resect, but you're able to implant something upstream or downstream? Even if, like, let's say you have a low ejection fraction, you can implant and assist downstream of that side of the heart and the half of the heart and leave the heart in place, but just assist it that way. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's, you know, uh, interesting. It's that type of concept we see in something called a heterotopic heart transplant, where we actually leave a native heart in place. We put a new heart in a different location. Um, so yeah, that would that would be you know a possible way to do it. But just you know, in general, the concept that you bring up or mention, which is to basically just address the left side of the heart in a bioartificial fashion, whether it be orthotopic or heterotopic, meaning whether you resect the heart or not resect the heart, you know, is 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 very very interesting. Um, you know, the model that we're that we're working on, you know, is cardiac replacement. Uh, There's been, you know, and that comes from, um, you know, the thought that it would be better, it would be a better solution if you removed the whole heart and you took the right side out of the equation, you took the valves out of the equation, um, so you don't have to deal with a lot of the problems that we see now with patients who have either an LVAD or a mechanical artificial heart. Hmm. So, um, I don't know, it sounds like a, a crazy challenge. What are, I mean, what are some of like the early stumbling blocks that uh, the company has run into? And if you're able to say, but what are some of the big challenges that are right here, right now that you need to overcome to move forward? Well, you know, we set up goals for ourselves, um, incremental uh, base hits, as our CEO, Steve, likes to say in a really, uh, you know, enlightening fashion, which is, you know, our home run or grand slam, so to speak, is to develop the bio heart. Um, but there are a number of challenges associated with that, just developing a chamber, developing a valve, developing a coronary artery, developing an aorta. Um, so we've actually identified a number of base hits, um, again, that terminology from Steve, which we've all adopted, which is, you know, what are some, what are some goals? initial goals that we can set along the way of the home run of developing the heart. And that is number one, to develop a valve, which in and of itself would be very, very useful if we had a bio valve, let's say a mitral valve or an aortic valve, um, because of the problems associated with artificial valves that are taken off the shelf, um, either prosthetic valves, bioprosthetic valves, or mechanical valves. They have limited shelf, they have limited lifespan, you have to go on blood thinners, um, you know, so there are many problems. So if we could develop a bioartificial valve, that would be very, very beneficial. So that's one of our goals. Um, the other one is developing uh, a graft, so aortic uh, tissue um, in situations where you need to replace the aorta. Um, something that we're looking at also is uh, arteries and veins, just developing arteries and veins. Um, so, yeah, there are definitely a lot of challenges associated with each of those. We have an amazing team. Um, our chief scientific team is really incredible. They've been recruited from the institute. 
Um, Ravi, our chief scientific officer, led that laboratory or was instrumental in that laboratory for many years. We were fortunate enough to recruit him. And his whole career has really been about um, developing substitutes for heart transplantation in terms of bioartificial therapies. Um, And he recruited several other people. So we have an amazing, amazing team, our uh, board and our advisors and you know, we, Steve really has put together sort of what I like to call the who's who of bioprinting and bioartificial heart oh, yeah. therapy around the country. Um, if you take a look at our website and you see all the amazing people Steve has recruited to the company, it's really an amazing group of individuals. So I think, you know, it's a huge, huge task. And if, you know, if there's one company that I think is going to be able to get it done, it's our company, It's but it's going to be a real uh, long-term project and challenge. But, you know, again, the base hits, so to speak, the mini heart, the valves, the aorta, um, you know, we're very focused on those right now. And so far they are really going very well. As a surgeon, I don't know, is there anything that your company could do to make it easier for you to do your job or make it more successful? Like, have you looked at it from that point of view, the surgery aspect, like, you know, what can be done again to help surgeons, help heart surgeons? Yeah, you know, as a surgeon, um, the first major challenge of a heart transplant is the entry, um, is getting in. And if a patient's had previous surgery, particularly if they've had an LVAD, it makes it very, very challenging. There's a lot of scar tissue. Um, So this process will help surgically because hopefully it will uh, minimize the need for LVADs if we have a bioartificial heart therapy readily available. So first off, it makes it, as a surgeon, it makes the entry much easier. Um, from the actual connection point of view, you know, the major connections we perform at a heart transplant are the left atrium, the inferior vena cava, the superior vena cava, the pulmonary artery, and the aorta, those uh, five connections. And, um, you know, our goal with the bioartificial heart is to replicate that as much as possible. Meaning we want a cardiac transplant surgeon who's familiar with heart transplants to be able to do this operation with not much additional training. Meaning we want it to look like a heart. Um, We want it to be sewn in like a heart. We want the operation to be fairly similar to a regular heart transplant. Okay, makes sense. Yeah, I just wonder what the what it would be like one day to be doing like again a biological uh, based LVAD or a whole heart instead of a uh, mechanical heart transplant. I don't know what how it would change the experience. You know, obviously the success rate, but uh, that's what I want to ask you. I don't know if there's anything again from the surgeon's perspective, but okay, that answers it. Yeah, yeah, um, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it changes also from a surgical perspective. It's hopefully is going to bring patients to the operating room earlier in the process. Um, You know, right now when patients come for heart transplant, they're super, super sick. They've often had an LVAD. They've been hospitalized many, many times with heart failure. Um, You know, if we have a bioartificial heart that's readily available, hopefully it leads to us being able to um, operate on patients even earlier in the in the process, and as a surgeon, um, you know that's associated with better outcomes. Yeah, what, uh, you know, this is probably remedial stuff, but what are the major uh, methods of heart failure? How does it happen most frequently? Most frequently from coronary artery disease, 
Um, it can be from hypertension. It could be from an infection of the heart or the valves. It could be from congenital heart disease. Um, you know, we see a whole variety of patients. You know, when it when it comes eventually to a transplant, um, that's when they all coalesce. You know, that's when they all really um, come together. And you know, how we treat those patients is there's certain common principles. You know, that we apply across the board, regardless of whether you had heart failure caused by coronary artery disease or hypertension or an infection. Mm. Okay. I know in some cases the heart dilates and grows big and then it can't work efficiently. And in some cases there's heart attacks that literally cause dead patches in the heart and just reduce its ability to pump. And I just didn't know if there's any more to it than that, but the, it, it is very, very common what happens to the heart. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. You know, some processes cause the heart to thin out and dilate, others to get really thick. Um, others, the cavity gets obliterated. Um, so there are whole different, you know, the valves could be um, abnormal. There are many, many different mechanisms, um, you know, that cause that cause heart failure. But um, ultimately, once they end up on the operating room table and you're doing a transplant, um, you know, we try to uh, we try to apply certain uh, principles across the board. Yeah. And last last question or so. This is more to like your surgery work. What I mean, what's it like to uh, to do a heart transplant on someone? Is it, you know, what does it, does it feel, I don't know, what does it feel like? Well, it's, you know, it feels great. It's a, it's a fascinating thing. Um, you know, it makes all the training and long hours worthwhile as a surgeon, as a doctor, because it, uh, it gives a patient a second chance uh, at life. And what I mean by that is you take someone who, without this therapy, would not be alive in one year, and you basically give them a median survival of 12 years. Um, and, you know, the opportunity to be with their family, their kids, you get to know their spouse, their children, um, their family and friends who come for the visit and who are there during the surgery. So you really um, have a very immediate sense of the impact you're having on this individual and their family. It's a great feeling. Okay. And for you, were you, uh, I mean, I don't know. You've, you've, I don't want to put it, you know, graphically, but you've opened up people's chests. You've, I, I guess, you know, seen a beating heart. You've uh, touched one and held one. And like, how did you think that affected you? I don't know. How does it? How has it affected like your outlook on things? Well, you know, it it's taught me uh, how precious life is and how you can't take life for granted. And uh, you know, the old cliche that if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. Many people, you know, they forget that and they get focused on different isolated burdens in their life, which are very significant. I'm not minimizing that, but, you know, if, if uh, you know, all of a sudden those or things that you thought were very significant and major problems become very small and they go very low on your list if you don't have your health and uh, certainly your heart, when you have heart failure and you get shorter breath with walking and activity and you can't sleep at night because your heart is failing, um, all of a sudden you, uh, you look at life differently. So facing that situation with patients, having those conversations on a daily basis, uh, emphasizes that to me on a daily basis. Okay. Well, excellent. So yeah, last question. So what's, I don't know, what, 
it's hard to say, but what's the timeline, do you think, for Biotime to get, uh, you know, a 3D printed heart up and running? How many years? I mean, is it just who knows or what's the thought? Oh, it's, you know, it's hard to say. Um, the team is hard at work. You know, the mini heart came much sooner than we thought. Uh, that You know, Robbie and his team are working on other things right now, other base hits, so to speak. Uh, so it's hard to put a timeline, you know, on the actual bio heart. But uh, I'm certainly hoping it happens pretty soon because we have lots of patients who need it. Definitely. Okay, well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about progress? You know, read papers or check out the company's website? You know, where should they go? Yeah, BioLife 4D. You can check out the company's website. You can Google all the different press releases and different activities, interviews that uh, our CEO, Steve, has given, or Ravi, our chief scientific officer. There's a lot on YouTube as well. Um, also, uh, Facebook and other social media sites. Excellent. Well, Dr. Morgan, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. No, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.